John chapter 9, page 1233 in the Pew Bible in front of you. We're going to uh, look at this uh, incredible narrative of Jesus' interaction with the blind man. Initially, when I was laying out the Gospel of John and how we would go through it, I thought that we would take this story in its entirety, but mm, you know that feeling that you feel at Thanksgiving when you're sitting at the table and you're looking across all that food and the realization hits you that there's absolutely no way that you can partake of so much good food. You don't even know where to begin, and so you start just putting little dabs of stuff all over your plate. just looks like a... Well, that's kind of like John chapter 9. It's such a bounty that uh, trying to take more than just, you know, five or ten verses at a time is just simply impossible. There's just too much here. It's too wonderful. It's too good. And so we'll take this week, and then next week as we celebrate baptism, we'll finish our conversation about Jesus and this blind man. So let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on our study this morning. Father God, we thank you for your word. We stand humbly before it, God, recognizing that this is your word that you breathed out, that you intended for us. It's perfect and errant in every way. It's relevant and meaningful. It's alive, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the deepest places in our lives. And Father, we pray this morning as we look to your word, God, that you would open our ears, give us ears to hear through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. Help us, God, this morning to hear rightly from you that we might be changed as you see fit to change us. We desire you this morning. We're thirsty, Lord. Come, quench, bring life into this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you remember last week as we were wrapping up chapter 8 that Jesus had made this great declaration in chapter 8 verse 12 where he said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness but have the light of life. Now, the Lord Jesus steps into the, this ordinariness of the life in which we lead. He comes into this world that is cloaked in darkness and he brings light he brings the potential and the possibility for you and me to walk in the splendor of who he is to know his wisdom to see and wonder at his power and his goodness and to receive and bask in and then live our lives in this light that he comes to bring and As Jesus is walking through life, as he is encountering all of these different people and all these different scenarios and situations, it dawns on me that if those around him, the ones who would just stop and listen, they will hear his brilliance. They will no doubt hear teaching as has never been spoken before. They'll they'll catch a glimpse that heaven is now open and that there is something profoundly different 
in the world now that he has arrived on the scene. But the astonishing thing is that few notice. And that as we have walked through these first eight chapters of the Gospel of John, we have seen time and time again that as we celebrate the, the, the lives and the transformation of those who have, have stopped and taken notice and been transformed by Jesus, the multitude just pass on by. So if you get out your listening guide, we're going to have a little challenge for you today. So if you have attention deficit disorder, pay close attention to what's about to happen. This is the third set of blanks on your, not the first, the third. So if you write this in the first, it's going to be very, very discombobulated and make absolutely no sense. The third blank is because of a deep blindness, most people miss seeing the greater things that Jesus promised. They just miss seeing. They, there were so many people who, as we've seen, believed as they saw the signs and the miracles and wonders that Jesus performed. And they, they knew that there was something amazing and incredible happening right before their eyes. But they... They remained blind. They, they missed seeing the greater things that were right before them. And so the question that we continually have to ask ourselves as we read the Gospel of John is, Lord, do I? Do, do I miss these greater things, God? Do I, do I pass through these, these opportunities? Do Sundays come and Sundays go and... Mondays come and I'm dry and thirsty. I'm not abiding in your word. I don't hear your voice. I'm not seeing you move. I'm you know, it, it's not that God's conducting an experiment, although it could seem that way, to, almost as if he's trying to see if people will notice him. Jesus comes to give life to whoever would receive. But why? Why why do so many people miss? How is it possible that people would miss God in the flesh? So he's the light. He comes to remove all of the things that blind us so that we can, as we talked about last week, see the world as it is meant to be seen. You know, he's not hiding from us. He's right there in the open. He wants people to see him and know him. He's not trying to trick them. He's not being elusive. He's right there. He stands and shouts as the lights dim over the festival of tabernacles that he is the light. He shouts as the final pitcher of water from the pool of Siloam is poured over the altar by the priest that whosoever is thirsty, let them come and, 
and drink. He, he is like a giant glaring billboard trying to make himself known, giving opportunity to all who would hear. And he's doing the same thing here. The same thing this morning. So following the, the chain of events of chapter 8, it would only make sense that his next encounter would be with a, a blind man. I mean, who else would, would be the person that Jesus meets with following his declaration of being light? So John chapter 9 begins in verse 1 simply saying, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. Now let's make sure that we understand the context of what's going on here. You know, it would seem by the way chapter 8 ended, I mean, all you have to do is glance back one verse and look at how it ended. There were, people had stones in their hands ready to stone him. It would seem that Jesus was running by, but, but he was just... As Jesus does, passing by, not in a hurry, not rushing along, but being very intentional about what he's doing, and he passes by. And, you know, it's not just the religious leaders at this point who want to kill him, and they do want to kill him. And they have made that crystal clear. But what's more shocking is that if you read chapter 8 closely, you notice that it's the Jews at the end who believed in him, who actually are the ones who are holding stones in their hand as the chapter comes to an end. Just glance back at chapter 8 and let me show you how this works. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. I just want you to see this. You can underline this in your Bible. John chapter 8, look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of light. Now look at verse 13. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. And so there's this dialogue that follows from verse 13. But I want you to just underline the Pharisees right there. It's him and the Pharisees going back and forth from verse 13 all the way through verse 30. But notice the transition that takes place at verse 31. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, just like we just sang. Then they said to him, who's they? Not the Pharisees, the Jews who believed. Were you not born of fornication? They immediately, the Jews now, who believe, turn against Jesus and, and start accusing him. They're saying, wait a minute, we know who you are. You were... Born of an unwed mother. You're a bastard. Believing. So in verse 59, when it says they took up stones to throw at him. Hmm. So now you understand what's happening. Jesus isn't running. He's passing by in verse 1. 
He sees a man who is blind from birth. The light of the world leaves this angry mob who wants to kill him and goes straight to a man who had spent his entire life in darkness. Now I want you to know some similarities between this man and the paralytic from chapter 5. You remember we had a wonderful time studying about the paralytic in chapter 5. And there's some interesting correlations between these two. Now, we didn't have room, obviously, on your outline to put all these down, but I'll just read them to you. This man and the paralytic from chapter 5, both of them are nameless. Both of them are in a desperate condition. Remember the paralytic laying by the pool waiting for somebody to uh, come along and help him so that he could jump in the pool as soon as the water stirred so he could get healed? So they're both desperate. Both men were relegated to a life of begging. Both men have known suffering most of their lives. Both of them were approached by Jesus and not vice versa. Both healings, as you're going to see in a few minutes, occur prior to faith, which is interesting. Both men are healed on the Sabbath. Both men look to a pool for healing. Both men will suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. And both men receive an opportunity to address their deeper need following their healing. It's very interesting. Now this blind man has been blind from birth. We don't know much about him, but here's what we do know just based on verse 1. We know that he knows nothing but darkness, that he can't read, that he has no occupation, that he has no income or money there to speak of. How could he? In this context, in this culture, in this time, the only place that he could live would be on the streets. He wouldn't marry or have a career. There's no government program that would help him or assist him. He is completely on his own and at the mercy of those who might feel pity for him as they pass by. But into this utter darkness that he lives day in and day out steps the light of the world. I'm reminded of Bartimaeus from the book of Mark who hears the commotion coming. And begins to ask, hey, what's going on? And people say, oh, Jesus is coming. Remember, and he jumps up and starts shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Similar, this man is in such a desperate and destitute situation. And so as they're passing by, look at verse 2. Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples. Now, you could ask yourself, now how did Jesus get out of the angry mob with rocks and end up walking down the street with his disciples? But this is par for the course for Jesus. Whenever a mob tries to attack him before it's his time, he just slips out. Sometimes he passes, right, the Bible says, through the midst of them. And sometimes he just kind of disappears and reappears somewhere else. So here he is walking with his disciples. I always wonder, like, how did the disciples figure this out? Like one minute they're trying to stone him, and then where'd he go? And then somehow they 
you know, go, do they have like, like, you know, like you do with your kids at Disney World? You go, now, if you get lost, this is where I want you to go to this particular place we're going to meet. So Jesus is always telling his disciples every time they go into a new place, he says, now, look, if I disappear, I want you to go to that olive tree, you know, down there by the fork in the path, go down there and I'll meet you right there. But there they are together. So they're walking along. And so as they see this blind man, the disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this is an interesting question. It's a question that uh, we all have interest in and that we all, if we're honest, would ask this question. But so many things have caught my attention this week thinking about this passage. I first started thinking about the fact that, you know, giving Jesus an A or B answer, bad idea. Bad idea. You know, Jesus doesn't like to be boxed in. You know, they ought to know by now that, that putting him in a box and giving him multiple choice is going to be a fiasco. Don't do that. So just remember that when you're praying. Don't, don't give Jesus A and B answers. He... he Pretty much blows that up every time. But why do they ask this question? I mean, why, why, why do they not understand at this point in Jesus' ministry the connection between sin and suffering? Why do they seem so perplexed after everything that they've seen and experienced? Well, I, I think it's pretty clear. It's the same reason why people ask this question today and why this is such a big topic today. It's because they're looking for a place to assign blame. They want to know why is this the way it is. And it's the same thing that we do today whenever someone suffers. We want to know why. Why are they suffering? Why are things in their life going the way that they're going? What is the reason for that? Whose fault is it? It's the human condition. You see, anything that blocks our selfishness, we need to attach blame to it so that we can get around the obstacle that's before us. We want to think about ourselves. We want to serve ourselves. We want to do the things that ourself wants us to do for ourselves. And so when anything inconveniences that, when anything becomes an obstacle to that, we need to assign blame to it. We need to, we need to make some humanistic way of, of understanding it so that we can then go around it and get back to doing what our flesh wants us to do, which is indulge in self-worship. Let me help you understand. You see... The human condition, the flesh within us, desires understanding in places that cause us, you know, stumbling. We'll manufacture whatever we have to manufacture. We'll stretch our minds to the nth degree to come up with some way of explaining something so that we can then ease around it and get back to doing what we want to do even in our own delusion. All right, I'll explain it to you this way. When I went to India 
I saw this played out in utter clarity. When you go to India, here's what you'll see. You'll see the most horrific human suffering that I've ever seen anywhere on the globe. At a, at a, a rate that is so astonishing, it's, it's mind-boggling. And what you will find is that there is such incredible suffering everywhere, on the streets, in the parks. I mean, just whereas in, in all the other places that I've been in the world, there is this desire at least to, to hide that, to sweep it under the rug, to, to stuff the, 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 the children into orphanages and, and push the lepers out into, uh, you know, colonies and to, you know, clean up places, but not in India. In India, you just walk over children who are suffering. You just, you just kick their arms aside as you're walking down the street. People are just dying all over the place. And there literally are families walking with their children, going to school, just walking by this unspeakable suffering as if it is utterly and completely invisible to them. And you ask yourself, well, how horrible is that? Well, it's very simple to understand. What they've done is they've devised a way of understanding suffering. They believe that every person is on this eternal journey. That we're on this long process of working out the consequences of sin. And so that the way that they explain suffering is that if, if, you're, if you're poor, sick, afflicted, whatever's wrong with you is because of some previous sin that you are paying penance for today. And so therefore, because of their belief structure, they believe that the reason you suffer is your own fault, so therefore they have no mercy or no pity on those who suffer. And furthermore, they believe that through their idea of karma, that if you help people who are in that condition, their sin will then taint you, and then you will then begin to suffer for their filthiness. So therefore, they just walk around. And they're able to live and serve and worship themselves without any regard whatsoever for the condition around them. Isn't it amazing? It's the same question the disciples are asking. They're looking at this man born blind and they're asking, why is he born blind? They're, they're, not, they're not feeling compassion over the fact that he's, he's blind. They're not, say, you know, they're, they're not saying, Jesus, isn't there something we can do to help him? They just want to know so that they can assign blame, so that they can go around the obstacle and get right back to doing what they're doing. It's exactly what we do. We don't believe in karma like they do in India. But it's always wrong and insensitive to conclude that those who suffer either have some secret sin that they haven't confessed and that it's some way of God getting them back because of some thing that's going on in their life or that it is due to the fact that they don't have enough faith and had they had enough faith or if they would get enough faith then whatever their affliction is would go away. One wrongly assumes that there's 
always a link between a specific ailment and a specific sin, which is ridiculous. And the other wrongly assumes that God always wants to instantly heal. And that he's blocked from doing so by insufficient faith. Case in point, the paralytic man in chapter 5 had zero faith and God did what? Healed him. Remember that. The next time that you ask yourself, oh, I wonder why that's happening in their life. I wonder why they're going through that. I wonder why their, their marriage is so rocky. I wonder why their spouse cheat on them. I wonder why their kids are, are, have gone astray. I wonder why. I wonder, what, I wonder what hidden thing is under that. Be very, very careful. I thought about over the years how many times I've heard someone say, I, I mean, I hear people say things that are so crazy, but yet they... They're true to them. And the fact that they say them teaches us something. Have you ever heard anybody say, Oh man, I, I, could, I could sense the Spirit of God dealing with me. I, 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 could, I could feel conviction. You ever talk to somebody after a service and, then, and they say, You know, I wanted to go to the altar, but... I didn't because I didn't want people to think that that was the sin I was struggling with. What? Have you ever felt that? Let me give you some good advice. Whenever you feel an unction inside of you drawing you to do something for God, when your mind goes to what other people think, you immediately tell that voice to shut up. And don't ever worry about what other people think. Don't ever worry about what other people think. When the Spirit of God convicts you, you respond. So they, they want to know, why is, this, why is this man suffering? Well, Jesus, it must be this or it must be that. Verse 3, so Jesus says, option A or option B, neither. Neither this man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now, notice that Jesus' answer about this man's blindness has little to do with what the question was. He's not addressing... The past and how this man became blind, this is important. He's not addressing the present and the challenges that he faces in the present being blind, but he immediately pushes forward to where the blindness is leading. Do you understand? Do you, I want you to see how Jesus presses forward. He doesn't, he refuses to look in the rearview mirror. He's not even addressing what's happening right now. He's looking forward. He points forward. Some of you in this room are, are in a season of suffering right now. Some of you in this room are 
about to enter a season of suffering right now. And as that season comes upon your life, you're going to remember this message and realize that God was prophetically speaking into your life to prepare you for what lies ahead. Now listen very closely. In the moment of suffering, it's not the rear view mirror. It's not the mirror that's in front of you. It's through the windshield ahead. Where is this going? Notice he says, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. He's pointing forward. So I want to give you some better questions. Now we're back to the first blank. Better questions. Instead of saying, hmm, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder why this person's suffering. I wonder why this is going on. Was it their sin or their parents' sin? Which, by the way, you, you can't, you can't, knock the disciples for asking the question the way they answered it. We know that in the Old Testament there are places in Scripture where the Bible says the sins of the Father will fall on the next generation, the generation to come. But let's just make sure that we're clear about that. First of all, if you keep reading, what does it say? Of those who hate God. Second of all, Jesus Christ is the chain breaker. Salvation breaks the chain of generational sin. So this is what we want to do. We want to, we want to look forward in our suffering. We want to ask better questions. Here's better questions. Not, how did I get here? That's not a good question. A good question is, how does God want to use this in my life going forward? That's a much better question. How about not... What do I wish I had done differently? You see, what's the person who says, how did I get here focused on? The present. What's the person focused on who says, well, what do I wish I had done differently? The past. We're not focusing on that. But let's ask this question. What am I going to do differently now based on what God has allowed me to go through? You see... How is my life going to change moving forward having been allowed to suffer in this way? Having been allowed to walk through this storm? So Jesus says, which I feel is the most pivotal passage in this first 12 or so verses... In verse 4, Jesus says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So many times when somebody begins to read or talk about John chapter 9, they'll get hung up on the question, why is this man blind? Was it his sin or the sin of his parents? And the answer, neither. That this is for the glory of God. And then that's the end. But you stop too early. Jesus then, in giving explanation and insight into what is really going on in this suffering, He says... I must work the works of him who sent me. You see, he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, you you want to debate about this guy. 
You, you want to have a conversation about this guy. You want understanding about this guy, but I want to help this man. I want to help him. You want to argue about him? I want to minister to him. There's so many people walking around today who are so confident in their self-imposed uh, wisdom and ideas about the reasons behind what's going on in other people's lives. And they're always ready to have a debate. They're always ready to have a discussion. Jesus doesn't want to have a debate or a discussion. He wants to help the person. He wants to minister to the person. You see, here's what Jesus wants his disciples to know. He wants, he wants them to see that this man is not judged. He's loved. You see, what he's telling them is, listen, his blindness is not a, an indication of his cursing. I love him. I created him. I know everything about him. Man, how our lives would change if we saw with eyes that would see that way. Hmm. If at the end of the day, we'd hear people say that my heart looks like his heart. Yeah. That's what that would look like. Oh, yeah. The world's hung up on why is he blind? What caused it? How many hours in my life have been spent agonizing through conversations with people who are resistant to God and who are resistant to the grace of Jesus Christ because they're hung up on, well, what about this? And why did this happen? And why did that happen? And the whole time I'm looking across at them, I'm, I have to remind myself, I'm here because Jesus loves you. And I'm trying to get you to see that he loves you. So here, in the case of this blind man, it has everything. His blindness has everything to do with God. His mission, his work, his purpose, his glory, and the example that he's making of what life is in the light. You know that... Verse 4, I must work the works of him who sent me. If you look closely at that, that, that is the literal translation is actually we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus standing there with his disciples, that's a very inclusive statement that, that we, we have to be about that work. You see, for Jesus, there's always unfinished work, isn't there? It's never done, is it? It's, there's always a purpose in, in everything. If he walks up to a well to get water, there's a purpose behind that. If he, if he stops by a tree, there's a purpose behind that. If he, if he goes to wherever he goes and whatever he's doing, there's a purpose. He's always looking and, and, and focused on working the works that the Father has sent him to accomplish. And until eternity comes... Until Jesus returns to get us, there's always going to be work to do, isn't there? There's always going to be unfinished work. But so many times we're asleep at the wheel. 
Jesus says in effect this. Stop seeing the man as an issue to debate rather than a person to help. It's a person. He has a name. He's important. He has a mother and a father that we're going to meet in a few uh, verses. He has a name. He grew up somewhere. There was a day that he was born that, that at least in this culture, momentarily there was rejoicing in the fact that life had been granted until the realization came that he was unable to see. But he was no less knit together in his mother's womb than anyone else. You see, you, you and me have to be careful with regards to this issue. We have to be careful that as we think about the work that's always there, unfinished, there's always work for us to be doing. The work of the Father is always before us. We don't want to find ourselves spending, uh, spending all of our time explaining rather than serving. You know, notice there... Maybe their curiosity was genuine. Jesus, we were just wondering why he was blind. Maybe it was genuine curiosity. But what Jesus is saying is that's irrelevant information. There's a person before you who is suffering and needs to be served. Stop having an explanation about why things are the way they are and get busy. There's work for me and for you. Every single day that God grants us life, that our eyes open and our lungs fill with breath, there's important work to be done. But you see, there's... It's like we so many times swim in a sea of apathy. It's like the, the, the universal church so many times is is just been lulled asleep by their own musings. There's congregations upon congregations upon congregations that accomplish absolutely nothing for the kingdom, yet they spend countless hours debating and rationalizing, and there's just words upon words upon words upon words upon words. And I believe with all my heart, it just makes the heart of God sick. That's what he's saying to his disciples. He's, he's using this pivotal moment in their lives to say, listen, guys. Yes, you, you've come a long way. But in order to graduate, you're going to have to get this truth down. Because I'm not going to be with you forever. Don't be walking down the streets after I'm gone asking questions about why this and why that. Don't be sitting around, you know, trying to have some intellectual think tank about some theological thing that nobody really cares about. What are you doing? What are you doing? Who are you helping? What need are you meeting? That's what he's pointing them at. That's what he's pointing us at. He's, he's illuminating to them. Remember, the light of the world who's about to illuminate this man who's been born blind, is illuminating the, the disciples to something just like he's illuminating some of you this morning to something. There's a reality that lies 
sort of low beneath us that is ever present whenever you or any time that you ever enter onto this property. There's a reality that's always present there. That so many people just step over on their way to worship. And it's this. There is nothing that I know of that will amplify your insight into what God is doing more than involvement in His work. You see, as soon as we start to have a conversation like this, as soon as we start to look at a verse like 4, we, we the, the, immediately begins this process of, well, well, you know, well, I do this, or I do that, or I don't know what to do, or I, you know, and then we just start going around in our head and in our mind. But I just want you to, to first realize, just settle all the mental gymnastics that go on in our heads, just settle all that down for a moment, and just realize that people who sit on the sidelines, they don't see the things that people who are involved see. They don't see them. They miss them. And my experience of 17 years of being a pastor is, is that there are multitudes of people who, who sit among and who, who, who walk for a season alongside, who are around and in proximity to the power and, and the, the movement of the hand of God, but they miss and, and they they, they try to appear and oftentimes are deceived into believing that they're the same as people who are engaged in the work of God. But you're not. You will never see the supernatural power of God from the sideline. You will not see it. You will not see it. The fact that you, ma'am, sir, student, young person, the fact that you possess the capacity of heaven within you does not mean, does not mean that you walk in its power and that you utilize it for its potential. No, sir. No, ma'am. These are his disciples. Listen, these are the ones who three chapters ago said, well, Lord, to whom shall we go? For only you have the words of eternal life. We've come to know and to believe that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. How many times? How many times have you seen a person come forward at the end of a service, stand up before the congregation? Jesus is my Savior. I'm going to follow him in believer's baptism. Man, the line's wrapped all the way across the room. People are coming by, shaking your hand, congratulating you, welcoming you into the family. We're so excited. Six months later, where are you? You're still here. But you don't see. You don't see what other people see. Jesus is teaching people who say, 
We've come to know and to believe you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's teaching them there are works to be done. And I need to be about the work of my Father. We need to be about the work of the one who sent me. Yeah. You know, until you're until you're sitting in a room teaching the things that you've gleaned out of the field of a moment like this to a group of kids that are not yours, they're somebody else's. Until you're gathered in a small group of men or a small group of ladies and you are uh, sowing into their lives as they sow into your lives with the express purpose of multiplying for the glory of God, until you are giving up your Saturdays to study, to prepare yourself to teach Sunday school on Sundays. What I'm saying is, is that so long as you step over this reality and walk into church with zero responsibility as a consumer, you will never see the glorious things that God has to show you. This is not a consumer event. My heart pains at the thought of how many people miss this reality and will stand before Jesus with this bewildered look on your face and all along you thought showing up was blessing the heart of God. And let's face it, Most of the time, you can't string together five or six of them in a row. You know, it's just one here, one there, one here, one there. If I don't come, it doesn't matter. I don't have to call anybody and tell anybody, hey, you know what, I'm going out of town, so I need you to handle my responsibilities. No. Mm -mm. You might as well have bought a ticket, come in and sat in a movie theater. Well... Wonder what's on tap for today. Wonder what's cooked up for me to dine on today. Discipleship doesn't happen until we relinquish being a consumer. We've got to relinquish that and embrace the call to kingdom work. Remember a couple weeks ago when we were in John chapter 7? And we talked about verse 38 where Jesus said, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And I said that according to Jesus, real faith is faith that flows. You remember that? Do you see a theme? Just, do you see, are you, don't be blind to what is God trying to say to us, Michael Memorial? Week after week, there's these themes that keep coming to us about what discipleship is, what followership is. It's not being a consumer. It's not being a reservoir. If you drink of living water, it flows out of you. You will, as 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2 says, take these things that you've heard from me and you will give them, you will implant them in the lives of faithful men, that they also will teach others. You see, that is the purpose of God. When God shows you something, it's not for you. You know that? 
It's for you and then for someone else. See, they're walking. I mean, I'm telling you. Look, I'm stuck on verse 5. They're walking past a blind man. And I cannot get over what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know what your life should be about? Your lives, my life and your life, together, our lives should exist to help people overcome blindness, not to explain it. That's what he's saying. We don't need to have a conversation about, oh, why is he blind? Well, what do you think? Well, what do I think? Well, why this? What about that? It's about advancing the kingdom, not commentating on it. When I'm done preaching in a few moments, there's going to be many people in this room who've had thoughts about what I've had to say this morning. You've thought about some things. You've thought to yourself, well, you know, I don't, it kind of feels like conviction. I'm not really sure. It's, I don't know, you know. What am I going to do about that? How am I going to respond to this reality? Let me just tell you something. If you don't invest in anyone, if you don't give to someone what God has given you, if you don't share the blessing that you've received from God with others, your faith is going to stagnate. You know, you've been, you've been coming to Michael month after month, year after year. You see the things that God does around. I mean, some of you in the room, no doubt, are thinking, Pastor, uh, what happened to you in Houston? Did you breathe in some black mold? Did you forget who you're talking to? No. I didn't. Here's what I thought when I was in Houston serving the victims of the hurricane. I thought about what a, what a great and gracious people that I have the privilege to shepherd. I thought about how incredibly generous you are. I thought about how many of you have given financially, who, who, who have, have taken time and, and put those buckets together that have been delivered to the people in need. I, I thought about all of that. But I also thought about the fact that everybody didn't participate. That some people just opted out of it. And then I thought, well, why is that? Why would you just opt out? And then I thought about everything that we do. Everybody doesn't participate in everything. Well, why is that? You say, well, Tony, you just got to get real. No, you got to get real. I am being real. I'm telling you what nobody else wants to tell you, which is, you know what Jesus expects? He expects all in. That's what he expects. He expects you to be in church every Sunday. Not most Sundays, every Sunday. He expects you to be sold out, participating, serving, giving, supporting, involved, 
all the way in. That's what he expects. Now, I can lie to you, and I can say, well, look, you're going to be okay because you're riding the wave of this amazing church where so many people get that, but that would be a disservice to you and, more importantly, a disservice to my king. Nobody rides the wave. You're either in here treading water with us or you're not. See, the months turn into years. I didn't serve God, didn't serve God, didn't serve God. Looking in the rearview mirror, saying, well, but you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this, so my time's over. Really? Jesus said, nope. The day's going to end and turn to darkness. You better get the job done now. Now's the time. There's unfinished work to be done. There's people to serve. You asked the question this morning. Why is my heart so cold? Why does God seem so distant? Why am I not as passionate and on fire for the Lord as I once was or as I'd like to be? Now, I didn't know Pastor Rod was going to say that when I walked in when he was talking about preparing ourselves for worship, tasting, and seeing and knowing that the Lord is good. I think the passage that God laid on my heart is Ecclesiastes chapter 5. These verses will come up on the screen. Here's what the scripture says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and draw near to hear rather than to give the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they do evil. Do you know what? Do you know what that verse is saying? That verse is saying that if you don't guard your steps on your way to the house of God, if you don't prepare, your, if you're not thoughtful, involved, engaged in the work of God, if you're just flipping, if you come as a consumer, you give the sacrifice of fools and your work is evil. That's a hard word. Let me tell you something about this passage of Scripture. You can listen to it online. I preached on it two weeks ago. That the word here where it says draw near to hear, that word here in the original language is a compound word. The word is made up of two words. It means both to pay attention and to obey. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God and draw near to pay attention and obey rather than to give the sacrifice of fools. The scripture goes on in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes and says, well, When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. You say, well, I don't make vows to God. Oh, yes, you do. You make them almost every time you walk in the door. You sit there, and unless you completely check out or go to sleep, there's a moment where you listen, and all of a sudden you feel convicted. And you realize that God is telling you to do something. And you think, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to start reading my Bible. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in a D group. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to call the church and tell one of the pastors, I'm ready to start serving. I need to find a place to serve. I'm going to start doing this. I'm gonna start. And then you leave and you get in your car and you drive away and it goes right out of your mind. And you know what God says? It ain't out of my mind. 
I heard it. You didn't tell anybody else, but I heard it. I know what was said in your head. See, he knows what you're thinking right now. And he's saying, don't be thinking that about your pastor. (laughs) See? I want to quote a verse in Hebrews right now, but that might be too far. Listen, Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, you better make sure. You better make sure that your daily lives, you better make sure that your religious engagement and involvement reflects devotion and awe to God. You know what doesn't reflect devotion to God? Serving ourselves. Doing what's easy and what's convenient. That's sending the wrong message, and Jesus refuses to endorse that message. So look at what happens. Look at verse 5, verse 6. So when Jesus had said these things, he spat on the ground and made clay with his saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Now, I don't know how we can go from such a serious moment, and then I have to read a verse about spat. Saliva. I thought about all the times as a child that somebody reprimanded me for spitting, and I thought, why didn't I know to say, ah, Jesus did it. Jesus spits on the ground, mixes the dirt around, Make some mud. The word anointed is really misleading. That word is smear. And he smeared it on the guy's eyes. Hmm. Man, oh man, we got some opinions about this. Now, why did Jesus spit on the ground, mix up some mud, smear it on the guy's eyes? Goodness, in the last 25 years have I heard every ridiculous cockamamie idea about why this is the case. Well, he wanted everybody to know for sure that the man was really absolutely totally blind, so he packed his eyes full of dirt. Well, that's stupid. Well, since he made Adam out of the dust of the earth, he took the... Well, that's stupid, too. Man, it is. Just read the context. What's the context? What have I just gotten done talking about for 15 minutes? What is Jesus trying to show them? He's saying there's works to be done. You, You need to get involved in the Father's works. You need to make sure that you're not just busy doing stuff, but that you're busy doing the right things. It's a picture of what ministry is. You know what what ministry is? You know what kingdom life is? It's getting messy. It's 
being willing to get dirty. It's being willing to involve yourself in other people's problems and situations and circumstances. That's what it is. He's just illustrating the fact that if you're going to if you're going to live as my disciple, if you're going to practice fellowship, you got to roll your sleeves up and get dirty. That's what he's showing. Listen, he could have just said, "Bam," and then guy could see. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have winked at him and his vision would have came back. He could have done any way he wanted to. He was making a point about how we respond to suffering. How do we respond to need? Do we figure out a way to marginalize it and to make it make sense so we can get around it and go back to being the way that we want to be? Or do we stop and deal with it and get our hands dirty? What are you going to do? So, so here's, a, here's some questions about suffering. Are you willing to embrace suffering? If it's going to draw you closer to God. Do you know that he just heard what you said in your head? He heard that. Are you willing to embrace suffering if you know that it's going to draw you closer to God? Yeah. Yeah. Look around you. You're surrounded by people this morning that have walked willfully into extraordinary hardship for the express and only benefit of those in need. If Michael Memorial Baptist Church exemplifies anything, it exemplifies that. What about you? Will you embrace suffering if it'll draw you closer to God? Are you willing to alleviate the suffering of others to see them drawn closer to God? Uh Uh-oh. You see, you can't just step over that one, can you? Well, what do you do when you see need? When, was the, when the last time you saw need, what did you do? Did you respond to it? Or did you make it make sense in your head and go around it and keep going on what you were doing? You got to get your hands dirty to alleviate someone else's suffering. You know that? You know what they don't need? They don't need, they don't need a bunch of, of uh, stiff-necked religious people stepping over them in their suffering and saying, well, God bless you. They don't need that. They need somebody who's willing to get their hands dirty. Somebody who's willing to get down on their level. Who's willing to sacrifice their own agendas and their own time and energy and resources for the sake of others. 
That's why Jesus spat on the ground and mixed up dirt. He's saying, listen, you know what you don't want to do? You don't want to get to the end of your life, and you don't want to stand before me with clean hands going, yep, look how clean I am. You want to be grubby and dirty with junk stuffed under your fingernails from clawing in the ground, from getting down and dirty and helping people who need help. That's what Jesus is illustrating. See, that's why, look at verse 7. He turns around and says to him, Now go and wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. By the way, it's the same pool that the priest dipped the water out of when he said he was the, 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 the living water. Now look, Jesus didn't have to mix up the mud to make him heal, and he certainly didn't have to go to the pool. Now why did he send him to the pool? Well, you can read 20 books and hear 20 more stupid ideas, or you can just look at the context again and say, because when you do ministry, you quickly realize that ministry is not doing everything for everybody else, that it doesn't do you any good to want it more than the person wants it, that you have to, you have to get down and get dirty with people, but you have to allow people the space to do things for themselves as well. That we don't take all the burden, we just bear it with them. It's just, a, it's just an illustration of ministry. Jesus could have done everything for him in a word, but he didn't do that. He didn't. So he sent the man. The man goes, he's washed. And he came back saying, well, Hallelujah. Look at verse 8. Then the neighbors and those who had previously seen that he was blind said, Is this not him who sat and begged? And some said, Well, this is he. And others said, Well, he's like him. What are you talking about? Now, I want you to just try to picture this with me for a second. This man has been born since how long? Since birth. His whole life. You're telling me that this man who's been in this town, who's grown up around you, that you've seen all your life, you've seen this man. Everybody knows who he is. All of a sudden, this blind man now sees, and you got some people going, hey, uh, hey the, the guy who was blind now sees. And you got other people saying, well, I don't know, it looks kind of like him. <laughs> what? What do you mean it looks kind of... It sounds like they got a little blindness, doesn't it? Oh. They're blind, aren't they? Their blind spot is, is that they have walked those streets every day, taken their kids to school, went to the grocery store, gone to the festivals, never paid any attention to the blind man. They just missed that. And when all of a sudden people start talking about some miraculous event, all of a sudden they're thinking, well, now that doesn't make any sense, so it must not be him. Hmm. Remember what I said? When you're not involved in the work of the kingdom, you're not going to see the things that the people who are see. 
Many of us today avert our eyes from things we don't want to see. We just don't want to see. We don't want to know. We don't want to know about it. We don't want to know of the the critical needs around us. We don't want to know of the plight of the suffering around us. We don't want to know. We don't want to see it. We just want to pay a little tribute. Give a few dollars to something. Just roll on by. We didn't take the time to ask the waitress what her name is. We don't know anything about the store clerk where we shop every week. Hmm. We just run in, pick up our dry cleaning. Somebody's there. We don't know. And if they came in on Sunday morning and sat next to you, you'd look at them and think, now, do I know you from somewhere? You look kind of familiar, but I'm not really placing it. Well, sir, you've been picking up your dry cleaning where I work for the last 10 years. I know your name. You don't know my name? You see, we just avert our eyes from what we don't want to see. So they're having this conversation. Well, isn't this the blind guy who can now see? Well, I don't know. Well, it looks like. And meanwhile, he's standing there. He goes, hey, woohoo! I'm here. I'm him. I'm the cat who couldn't see. Ten minutes ago, I was blind as a bat. Now, 2020, right here. Here I am. They're still having a conversation around him as if he's blind. You ever notice that? People do that to you, Brother Wayne. They just talk about you around you. And then you ever go, hey, I'm blind, not deaf. I can hear you. Woo! I mean, they're having the conversation. The guy's standing right there. Therefore, they said to him, now, how were your eyes open? Now, that's a reasonable question because as soon as he says, yeah, I'm the blind guy you can see, the next question is, uh, well, how did that happen? He answered and said, well, a man called Jesus. He made clay. He anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. See, that would be a good place to underline. So I went and washed, and I received sight. So I, I listened, I paid attention, and I obeyed, and I received sight. Now, this is where it gets super weird. So in verse 12, they said to him, well, where is he? Where is he? Man, I've only been able to see for five minutes. I mean, this is all new to me. I don't know where he is. He said, I don't know. And Jesus, just like he's prone to do, right? He just disappears again. He's gone. He's not there. Why does he do that? Why does Jesus just disappear from the situation? Well, that's just, that's who he is. That's what he does. He doesn't, that's the thing about Jesus. He I don't want you to get all rattled up this morning. I want you to understand who Jesus is. He doesn't force His presence on anybody. He shows up. And He moves across a congregation. 
And he works in the hearts of people who are receptive. And those who respond, they see his movement and his work in the mundane things of their lives. You see, people who roll up their sleeves and get their hands dirty in ministry, you know what? The first thing that happens is that they, they're like, wow, pastor, let me tell you something. And they start telling me how God's in the details of their lives. And they're able to now discern the works of the, the great God who's always been at work. And it's just amazing. And when they do that, I'm like, isn't that awesome? You know what? When somebody comes up to me and tells me that, they're like, Pastor, let me tell you what God did. And, he's a, and I don't go, is that all you got? I mean, I've been knowing that. Where have you been? I say, praise the Lord. I just rejoice. I'm like, look, your, your blindness is, is, is getting washed off. And you can see the things that have been around you all this time. And you didn't see. I mean, the guy was blind and now he can see. It seemed to me like there ought to be a party. I mean, we ought to be a, there ought to be a party. And I'm talking about a sure enough party. If Wayne comes up in here next week with 2020 vision, it's fixing to be on. You hear me? I'm not going to go, well, now, now what about this? Well, now what about that? What about? I'm going to say, what? You're, you can what? Cancel everything. Rod, get the banjo. We're fixing to get after it. There's a verse in Luke chapter 7. It made me think about it. Verse 32, and then we'll be done. There's, here's what Jesus said. He said, they're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance and we mourned for you and you didn't weep. Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and how nothing's ever good enough for them. How they could see somebody who's the religious people could see somebody who was blind who now sees and they just are like, well... Let's have a conversation about it. No, man, let's dance. That's what we ought to be doing, dancing. Jesus is the one playing the music. Every time somebody gets saved, that's Jesus playing the music. He's saying, are you dancing? Every time somebody leads somebody to Christ, Jesus playing the music, are you dancing? Every time somebody steps out in faith and, and, and gets involved in ministry and steps up and starts serving and starts being a part of, of the works that God has called us to do, it's Jesus playing the music. We ought to be dancing. Look, he said, So I went and washed and I received sight. Golly, man. I just think about all the things I've seen. Oh. Uh, Think about all the teenagers I've seen who, man, God radically just turned their life upside down. And 
they go home and they tell their parents. They go, Mom, Dad, I was blind and now I see. And their parents go, well, that's nice, honey. What? Jesus played the music. You didn't dance. I wonder how many times I've seen somebody's life get radically transformed by God and, 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 and their spouse go, well, that's nice, but you know, it'll probably wear off. Or that's not what I didn't bargain for that when I married you. But I was blind and now I see. You, you missed that part? I can see. I can see. You know, I, I, don't, I don't want your co-workers and your neighbors to marvel at your biblical knowledge or understanding, as important as that is. Mm-mm. I want them to look at your life and go, what happened to you? You were blind and now you see. Something has changed you. You're not who you used to be. You know, as I said, I went to Houston this week. I drove in yesterday. And as the group of us, you know, were ministering to people in Houston... And I'm just thinking about working the works that God called us to do. And I'm looking at all that suffering, you know, and you, you drive down streets and there's just lives piled up eight feet high, just as far as you can see. All their furniture, all their memories, all their kids' toys, their pictures. The smell that I haven't smelled since Katrina, it's just so, the minute you smell it, you know that smell. It, it, it's the most horrible, undeniable smell I've ever smelled. It's the smell of suffering. And I'm thinking about all the things that God's given me sight to see. And I could tell you a hundred stories, but I'll just tell you one. We're working at this lady's house who, uh, well, actually, she, it's her parents' house. She has elderly parents. One of them's on hospice. They're both in their 90s, and uh, so their house completely flooded, so we were gutting out their house and, you know, just, just, you know, their whole lives, just wheelbarrow at a time, dumped out at the side of the road, and Elizabeth, the daughter, the homeowner, says, um, hey, can you come across the street? I want you to meet somebody. And I walk across the street, and I meet this lady, and she's sitting there. Uh, you know, there's no door, and I knock on the thing, and she said, come in. It's all dark. She's sitting in a chair. She just looks at me, so I'm just sitting in the dark. And I said, uh, well, hey, you know, my name's Tony, and you know, I got this eight days of hope shirt on so she can figure some things out. And she said, you know, 
I talked to her. She was telling me how, you know, she doesn't have insurance and her whole house is completely ruined. And uh, I said, well, I want to I pray for you. What's your name? And she said, my name is Miss Lopez. And I just, in that moment, I thought, yeah. There's some Lopez people in my life, and I, I love them. And then I thought about, in that moment, I thought, you know, I wonder how Matthew and Susan are doing. They just went through training to become a licensed foster home, and I haven't checked up on them in a while, and I wonder how they're doing. And at that very instant, my phone buzzed in my pocket. And I reached in my phone. I pulled my phone out. And I looked at it. And it was a text message from Matt Lopez, who hadn't texted me in probably a year. And it said, hey, Pastor, just wanting to check in with you and catch up. That very moment. See, I can see things. That other people are blind to. That's God right there. And I put my phone back in my pocket. And I prayed for Miss Lopez. And then that last day we finished working. We uh, decided, well, you know, we could spend another glorious night on the floor of the church. Or we could pile in this van and tough it out and make it back to Gulfport and sleep a few hours in our own bed. So we decided to do that. That wasn't our plan, but we decided to do that. So we came home. So when I came home, I uh, obviously, you know, had to come up to the church and work some yesterday, being gone all week. And so my wife had come and taken my truck to go do some things and left her car here, which I didn't have a key for. I'm in this van, and so i got to work all this out. And so I drive and get the key and come back and get the, put the van up and get in her car. And I'm going to drive over to my mother-in-law's house where my wife is, and I'm going to give her her car, and I'm going to get my truck. But on the way, I have to stop at the Miller's house because Scott left a few things in the van. And so Kristen comes out, and I said, here's Scott's things. And we talk for a minute, and I get in the Lisa's car, and I go back home. And so as I pull up at my mother-in-law's house to, to switch vehicles, right as I pull up now, I literally pull up, park, turn the car car off, open the door, and I see my wife running towards me, and I see a look in her eye, and I know that it's bad, and as she gets to me, she just falls into my arms, and I spin her around, and I put my hands on her stomach, and I go like this about three times, and the vitamin shoots out of her mouth that she was choking on. And my mother-in-law 
And my daughter, my two small children are standing there like, what just happened? We wouldn't have known what to do. How could he drive up at the exact second that she's choking? I know how. Because I can see. I can see. When you work the works of the kingdom, it doesn't mean that things will always go your way. What it means is you can see. You can see his work around you. So I went and washed, and I received sight. Now, what will you do?